It's December in Canada, which means, although not officially, that it's winter. So put on your gloves. They fit snug, right? That's a nice thing about gloves. They fit snug. They move the way your fingers move. They make fists and open up. Just like the pleura, they surround a vital organ and move with it. Sometimes, even with the best gloves, your gloves soak through or snow gets trapped inside, between your fingers, making it harder to function and even sometimes causing pain. Fluid can also do the same. It can build up between the pleura, making it harder and sometimes even painful to breathe. Today, your patient has a pleural effusion and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is called Pockets of Fluid and is all about pleural effusions. Now, time for a minute physiology. The pleura is a serous membrane that folds back onto itself to form the parietal and visceral pleura. The parietal and visceral pleura press together to form the pleural cavity, which is lined with a minute volume of pleural fluid. The visceral pleura wraps around the lung and the interlobar fissures, whereas the parietal pleura covers the chest wall, diaphragm, and mediastinum. Interestingly enough, the visceral and parietal pleura are separate with regards to their blood supply and innervations. The visceral pleura is supplied by the bronchial circulation and receives autonomic innervation from the pulmonary plexus. The parietal pleura is supplied by the intercostal arteries and is innervated by the phrenic and intercostal nerves. The parietal pleura is sensitive to pain, pressure, and temperature, whereas the visceral pleura is not. You can remember this by pairing the P's together, parietal and pain. Now that we've reviewed the basic physiology, let's move on to our history and physical exam. As always, it is important to ensure that your patient is stable before you proceed with your history and physical. Particularly for patients with pleural effusions, it is important to note any respiratory distress, supplemental oxygen needs, and oxygen saturation. Tachycardia, altered level of consciousness, or significant hypotension indicates that the patient is in extreme distress, and this should be addressed before you move forward with your history and physical exam. Signs of respiratory distress may include pursed breathing, clear cyanosis, intercostal indrawing, use of accessory muscles, or tripoding. Pleural effusions are a sign of local or systemic disease and refer to fluid accumulating in the pleural cavity. Pleural fluid can be any one of the bodily fluids, including pus, blood, cells, or serum. In rare cases, urine can also occupy the pleural cavity. As you can imagine, pleural effusions can represent a wide variety of diseases. So on history, a person with a pleural effusion may present completely asymptomatically or with increasing shortness of breath. The patient may complain of pleuritic chest pain if there is associated pleural inflammation. As always, it is important to delineate why a patient might have a pleural effusion, and your history can always help you with this. Common causes of pleural effusions are infections, such as pneumonia, congestive heart failure, and malignancy. Asking about associated symptoms with these conditions, such as a cough, sputum production, or fever for pneumonia, orthopnea, PND, or leg swelling for congestive heart failure, 
or constitutional symptoms for malignancy might help you determine the etiology of the pleural effusion. On physical exam, you might be suspicious that a patient has a pleural effusion if you hear reduced breath sounds and dullness on percussion at the lung base. Notably, egophony will be absent, and this can help you differentiate between a pleural effusion and a consolidation on exam. Depending on the size of the effusion, the patient may have reduced or asymmetrical chest expansion. Looking for clubbing may point you towards a malignancy, especially in a patient with a history of smoking. Always look for central and peripheral cyanosis in a patient with shortness of breath. Moving on to our investigations, you will want to get a chest x-ray with both a PA and lateral view to determine the size and the location of the pleural effusion. On an erect chest x-ray, you might see blunting of the costophrenic or cardiophrenic angles. A large effusion appears as a dependent opacity with a meniscus-shaped contour, while a small effusion may only be seen in the left lateral decubitus position. Basic blood work, including a CBC, electrolytes, albumin, and creatinine should be drawn. Significant leukocytosis may indicate an infectious process, new anemia may point to a hemothorax, and hypoalbuminemia may indicate a low oncotic state. As you can probably already tell, pleural effusions have a wide differential. The first step to determining the etiology of the pleural effusion is to determine if the effusion is an exudative or transudative process. Exudates are fluids which accumulate due to local factors, such as infection, inflammation, or malignancy, whereas transudates occur due to systemic fluid shifts, which occur in the setting of primarily cardiac, liver, and renal diseases. To diagnose a pleural effusion as exudative or transudative, you'll need to get a pleural fluid sample. This is done by thoracentesis, where fluid is extracted from the pleural space for diagnostic or therapeutic purposes. All new pleural effusions that are greater than one centimeter deep on ultrasound, as well as any effusions suspected to be related to an infection, should undergo thoracentesis for diagnostic clarification. When the etiology is known, a diagnostic thoracentesis is not required, but a therapeutic thoracentesis may be performed for symptomatic relief. We will not go into the details of performing a thoracentesis in this talk. Important things to remember, however, are that all thoracentesis should be done under informed consent, ultrasound guidance, and sterile precautions. Remember, pleural effusions as small as one centimeter deep are amenable to sampling. However, inexperienced providers should begin with draining larger effusions under supervision until they are comfortable with the procedure. So, you've drained the fluid and now what? A good way to remember what to send for fluid analysis is the four C's. First, a cell count and differential. Second, chemistry, in this case, pH, glucose, LDH, and protein. Third, culture and gram stain. And fourth, cytology. These four C's actually work for any fluid analysis, although the chemistry may change. Furthermore, you can add a fifth C for crystals if you are aspirating a joint. It is important to remember that you should also send a serum total protein and an LDH at the same time you are doing your thoracentesis. This will be important for helping to determine if your pleural effusion meets any of the LIGHTS criteria, which can help differentiate between an exudative and transudative effusion. 
The lights criteria is a set of three criteria. The first criterion is positive if the pleural fluid protein divided by the serum protein is greater than 0.5. The second criterion is positive if the pleural fluid LDH divided by the serum LDH is greater than 0.6. The third criterion is positive if the pleural fluid LDH is greater than two-thirds the upper limit of normal for serum LDH. Now, if any one of these three criteria are positive, then the diagnosis is an exudative effusion. As we said, exudative effusions are associated with infections, inflammation, and malignancy, as well as other causes such as pulmonary embolism, pancreatitis, hemothorax, and chylothorax. Chyle is lymphatic fluid. It is important to keep this differential in mind when you are taking your initial history and physical. For the majority of exudative effusions, treatment consists only of treating the underlying cause. An exception to this are paranemonic effusions, which are effusions associated with an infection, such as an ammonia. Paranemonic effusions can be serious and difficult to treat with the usual antibiotic regimens. All pleural effusions suspicious for paranemonic effusions must be sampled and sent for testing. Now, paranemonic effusions can be classified as simple, complicated, or as an empyema, and each requires unique management. An effusion is deemed complicated if it has any of the following features, a pH less than 7.2, a glucose less than 2.2, an LDH greater than 1,000, a positive gram stain or culture, as well as being large, defined as encompassing at least half the hemithorax, or loculated on imaging. Simple paranemonic effusions are exudative effusions with none of these features. While simple effusions can be managed with antibiotics alone, complicated effusions require evacuation, with the insertion of a drainage catheter and potentially the use of medications to break up and remove all infected materials from the pleural space. An empyema is the most severe form of a paranemonic effusion and is characterized by the drainage of frank pus on thoracentesis. This signifies more extensive infection and may require surgical intervention to remove all of the infection and prevent scarring of the pleura. To diagnose a transitative effusion, none of the three LIGHTS criteria are positive. Just to remind you, the LIGHTS criteria can follow the 5-6-7 rule. Pleural protein to serum protein greater than 0.5. Pleural LDH to serum LDH greater than 0.6 and pleural LDH greater than two-thirds the upper limit of normal for serum LDH, which approximately rounds up to 0.7. Transudative effusions are associated with conditions which cause systemic fluid shifts, the most common of which are heart failure, liver disease, and nephrotic renal disease. Less common causes include severe hypothyroidism and use of tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Unlike severe exudative effusions, management of the underlying etiology alone is often enough to manage transitive effusions. Sometimes, symptomatic pleural effusions can persist despite treating their underlying cause. This is most common in advanced and incurable diseases such as malignancy and liver cirrhosis. It is important to note that a cytology-positive pleural effusion automatically designates a malignancy as stage 4 if the primary malignancy is not pleural-based, and the patient should be referred to medical oncology for evaluation and possible treatment. When pleural effusions are refractory to just medical management and rapidly reaccumulate, 
They can be managed with the insertion of an indwelling drain to avoid recurrent thoracentesis. If the patient's prognosis is greater than three months and can be sufficiently drained, a chemical can be instilled into the pleural space, which promotes scarring and fusion of the visceral and parietal pleura. This is called pleurodesis. Pleurodesis obliterates the pleural space and prevents fluid from reaccumulating. It is important to note that these are invasive procedures for which not all patients are guaranteed to benefit, and therefore, respirology or thoracic surgery should be involved for a treatment of refractory pleural effusions. For our Medicine Minute today, we're going to review a 2014 systematic review in JAMA entitled, Does This Patient Have an Exudative Pleural Effusion? This systematic review looks at 37 studies and suggests that LIGHTS criteria alone may mischaracterize pleural effusions 7.8 to 15% of the time, based on previous literature. Therefore, other biochemical testing might help clarify your diagnosis. These tests include a pleural cholesterol greater than 55 milligrams per deciliter, an LDH greater than 200 units per liter, or a pleural fluid cholesterol to serum cholesterol greater than 0.3. Consider ordering these tests the next time you perform a thoracentesis. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Internet Work. This episode was written by Dr. Jessica Kaberlik, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Andrew Chung, general internist. As always, we have an associated infographic at www.theinternetwork.com. The Internet Work podcast was created by Allison Lai and is developed by Leia Karianopoulos and Zara Morali and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brant-Vegas. Music production by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Internet Work, and we hope to see you again soon.